Hi, my name is John Ross. I asked my dad if I could be a part of the show, and all he did was give me this to read. Welcome to the Always Believe in You show with your host, Damon K. Ross. Please enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Always Believe in You show with your host, Damon K. Ross. And I've got some uh, very sad news for you today. Uh, this will be my last show as uh, this has been very difficult for me to keep and uh, uphold and do just with time and everything. So this will be my last show. And uh, another announcement I need to make is I am just kidding. This is not my last show. But today what I'm going to be talking about is how to engage your audience. And one of the most important things is to have an attention grabber. And so you want to throw something out there right away. And I apologize if anybody almost had a heart attack, uh, particularly Coach Papa and uh, Kent and Rancher Ron. Sorry if I caused a heart attack. But I just wanted to uh, toss that out there and just to show how important it is to have an attention grabber. Because anytime you want to engage an audience, the best way to do that or, or one of the best ways to do that is to do it right from the beginning to grab their attention. So you want to have something that's going to pique the interest, that's going to perk up the ears, that's going to grab the attention of those that you're speaking to. So whether that's the classroom or you're in a lecture hall or whatever the case may be, you want to have something that's going to grab their attention right away. And I learned that from Coach Papa, uh, one of my mentors, uh, Tim Stewart, who when I first met him, he was asking me, how did I engage the audience when I go speak to teenagers and, and uh, youth? And, you know, I, I told him what I was doing and he was like, yeah, that's great. But, you know, you got to find something that's going to grab their attention right away. And I thought about it. And I remember one day he told me he was having an event that he was hosting and he told me that there was a possibility that he was going to have me come up on stage. And so I was like, geez, well, if he does, what do I say? Like, how do I get everyone's attention? And then this rap verse that I did came to mind and, you know, he didn't end up pulling me up on stage, but that still gave me the idea to use that rap verse. And so now anytime I speak in front of a group of youth that have never heard me speak before, I hit them with this. Hey, yo, what's going on in the world today? Many people talking how their minds are so blown away. It feels like the whole world is all out of whack. Just relax. You can keep your life on track. Not the life you wanted. Not what you envisioned. Your dreams started fading. Time to hang a new picture. Need to make a change. Have a look in the mirror. Take a step back so your vision gets clearer. Your life is not as bad as it seems. All you got to do is step in the new scene. Open your mind. Get yourself a good team. Keep working hard and you can live out your dreams. Whatever that includes, develop a game plan. Success come from that. It ain't placed in your hands. There's nothing in your way. Refrain from that view. Let go of all excuses. Start living brand new. And always believe in you. And the, I remember the first time I did that in front of a group of high schoolers. I went back to my high school and I debuted that. And I mean, the kids just gave me a, you know, a nice applaud and that, it felt great. And so I've used that a number of times and every time it, it really grabs the attention. And I even remember a time uh, speaking in front of adults. And I know I'm talking about how do we reach youth and, and young adults, but I was at a workshop 
talking about how to promote your speaking business or how to how to use speaking to promote your business. And everyone had to go up and do their uh, one minute speech that they had to do. And they, then we were critiqued by the by the um, facilitators of the workshop. And so, you know, I wasn't feeling good that day. And I, you know, I just wanted to relax. And so people were volunteering and I was just sitting there. And then finally, towards the end, the guy, you know, tells me to go up. And so I did that. And I kid you not, I got the biggest applaud out of everyone in the group. And I mean, and there were some people who really deserved it more because of how shy they were and how timid they were and how hard it was for them to get up in front of a group. Like to me, those folks deserved a greater applaud. But because I did something that was so different and unique, that grabbed their attention because I remember one of the people as I was walking back to my seat was like, wow, I did not expect that. So you want to try to get something that's going to grab their attention right away. And I know that could be a little bit difficult, but you know, whatever, do just find something, anything, you know, some kind of a statement or a question, or it can even be a, a silly type of activity. I saw something really interesting the other day, I was watching a YouTube video and this guy walked out and he immediately, immediately asked a question. He was like, how many of you can remember the crush that you had of the, when you were 16 years old? And a few people, and he, you know, didn't raise their hand. And so he pointed him out. I was like, Hey, you didn't raise your hand. So I got to do this again. I got to ask another question, you know, and then he asked another silly question like, you know, what is your favorite flavor of Jolly Ranchers or whatever the case may be. But it's something that he did to, you know, he asked a question right away, knowing that there were going to be some people in the audience that would be lazy and not raise their hand. And then he immediately pointed one out. But that was a great way to get everybody's attention. Like, oh, you know, he's really paying attention to us. So, you know, having a really good attention grabber is a great way to get started in engaging your audience, your classroom, or whatever the case may be. Another thing that is really helpful is giving clear expectations. When you are able to set the expectations that you have for your classroom, for your workshop, for your presentation, when speaking to a young group, it really helps because it can kind of set them at ease when they know what to expect, when they know what's coming, when they know their role in the classroom or in that lecture hall or workshop or whatever the case may be. It really helps to set people at ease when they know what the expectations are. And one thing that you want to do, and I know this is going to sound a little bit uh, different because when I heard it, I was like, man, I'm not sure about that. But they were saying, don't give choices. Don't really give a lot of choices. And I was like, that doesn't make sense because people need choices. But especially with the group that we're talking about reaching youth and young adults, sometimes when you give them choices, their minds will go all over the place. And so they will end up having a hard time making a decision. They will have a hard time focusing and getting one thing. I mean, it's funny, uh, Today, you know, that I'm recording this, there was a student at the school that I work at that really had a major struggle because they needed or they need clear expectations, clear direction on what to do. 
and they really couldn't handle it and really had a rough end of their school day. And that right there kind of solidified as I'm, you know, looking at this information and I'm like, wow, you know, I, I, I got a real life example of why you don't necessarily want to give choices. Now, I'm not saying that it's never a right time, but even if you do give choices, make sure that you select the choices. So you don't just open the floor up for them to decide on certain things. You want to give them certain choices. So you can pick A, B, or C, sort of like on a test. So you want to give clear expectations. Another thing that's important to really try to do is to find common ground. Now with that, that will take some doing homework on your part of getting to know your audience. And getting to know your audience, getting to know your class, the people, the participants is really important. And that's how you can figure out where you can find that common ground with them when you know who you're going to speak with, when you know who you're going to teach, train, lecture to, whatever the case may be. You want to be able to find that common ground where you have some form of relatability. And that comes with basically, you know, sharing some stories, sharing something relatable to the group that you're working with, you know, from yourself, from your perspective, maybe something you experience that they would be able to understand, you know, maybe taking a story from back when you were in school and an experience you had or a time when you were around their age range and, you know, talk about something that they can relate to. And because for some reason, people tend to really be engaged and focused in on what people are saying that they find some kind of commonality with, that they find some kind of relatability with. So you really want to do that. Another thing to think about or to, to, really use in order to engage your audience is to show them respect. Show your classroom, show your uh, workshop participants, show your students in the lecture hall respect. And that is a really big thing with today's youth is they often feel so disrespected. And, you know, we as adults can look at that and understand that a lot of it has to do with their perspective, but we have to be sensitive to that and we have to make sure we're watching how we are speaking, how we are communicating with them, because you don't want to be in a position where you're talking down to them, where you don't want to be in a position where you even give the appearance to be talking down to them. We have that a lot at the school I work at where these students, their perception, you know, a lot of it is because of their own lack of confidence that they feel like other people are speaking down to them when it's not the case at all. But perception can be reality or perception is reality for people. So you want to watch how you're speaking to them. Make sure you're talking to them with respect. Speak to, to them in a manner in which you're communicating, hey, I believe in you. I believe you understand this information. I'm not talking down. Now you, of course, if you're introducing new information, you want to be thorough and you want to really explain it and you want to explain it in a way that they can grasp the information. But you want to do it 
to where it's not coming across that you're talking down to them. And you just want to treat them with dignity, you know, treat them again, like I said, with respect. Another thing you can do to really engage them is to compliment, compliment your audience, compliment your classroom, compliment those you are teaching, those you are speaking to. Compliment them and let them know that you notice when they're working hard. You notice when they're really focusing. You're noticing when they're paying attention. You're noticing when they're getting the information, when they're grasping what you're teaching them. I mean, that in and of itself can really be an engaging thing because if they know that their work is being noticed, if they if they know that the simple act of them paying attention is going to be noticed, that is a way of engaging and keeping them wanting to continue to participate because they know that their participation, even by just listening and by focusing with their eyes, they know that that's going to be rewarded. They know you're paying attention. It increases the likelihood that they're going to be engaged in what it is you're talking about. Also, make sure that you have some activities or if possible, when possible, have some activities that go along with the lecture or go along with the the um, what's the word? I'm the lesson or lecture or whatever the teaching is. You want to try to have some activities that fit right along in that groove to, you know, really tie everything together. And the more activities that you have you know, the the more fun you can make it, it really will help with the engagement. And the guy that uh, I interviewed, he's going to talk a little bit about that, what he uses to engage the audience. It's kind of one of those things where it's like you want to give the, what is it, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So the activity obviously would be the sugar and the information that you're trying to share with them will be the medicine. So with that, when talking about the activity, you wanna, I don't wanna say completely forget about the cause or the lesson that you're talking about, but learn to communicate effectively. And if you can learn how to communicate effectively, that will help you a lot more than just giving the information. Because again, especially when we're talking in a teaching setting, a teaching environment, it's hard to get young people to really want to learn and want to take in the information that we have to learn in our education system. So you really want to learn how to communicate effectively. And if you can learn how to communicate effectively, uh, you know, and that's through the activities, that's through, um, you know, finding that common ground, you want to find just effective ways to communicate what it is you're trying to get them to learn and understand. And then we know that real life is better than the digital world. However, we do want to meet them where they are. So with that, what I'm saying is we want to use the digital technology as much as possible, but not to the point where it's too much because we want them to have that real life interaction, that real life connection with you and, you know, with the rest of the world, of course. But we do have to understand that the world that they are living in, it's a world that everything is going towards the way of technology. So we got to be able to meet them with that and use 
the technology in whatever way we see fit to help communicate whatever it is we're trying to teach them. And believe it or not, having good data or data, I don't data or data, I don't know. You guys know what I'm talking about. But being able to present that can be helpful at times. You know, I, I've had conversations with students and we're talking about high school because this place I work is middle school and high school. I was talking to one of the high school students and he was talking about how, oh, I don't need a high school diploma. And I was like, dude, you, you really want one? Because even in today's world, having that high school diploma is not really enough. But this, there's a significant jump in income from a person without a high school diploma compared to a person with a high school diploma, an even greater jump from a person that has a high school diploma but no college uh, no college degree, and then an even larger jump from the person with just the bachelor's to the person with the master's and so on and so forth. Now, do you absolutely need that? No, you do not. College is not for everybody, but a high school, I would say getting a high school diploma is is very important. So being able to show them the statistics, giving them data that shows that, hey, this is better for you. So whatever it is you're presenting, if you can present some numbers, uh, that could be a way to engage the students as well, as crazy as that might sound. Now, today for my Youth of the Week, I'm actually going to bring somebody in that is, or somebody in, they're not actually coming in because they can't come in. I'm actually going to talk about someone who is from the past. Now, all of the people that I've talked about up until this point are people that are living currently, but this person I'm uh, going to speak about today was someone from back in the 1700s. And my youth of the day is the one and only Miss Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis Wheatley was the first black to have any of her works published or any of their works published here in the United States. The most notorious poet in 18th century America was an enslaved teenager you've never heard of. And again, as I said, her name is Phyllis Wheatley. This information that I'm grabbing right now is from tweentribute.com, which is part of the Smithsonian.com. Uh, Phyllis Wheatley was the first black person to publish a book in America. She was also... Wait a minute. She was also one of the first women to publish a book in America. I promise you I can read, but the way this is written, it says she was also and one of the first. It That made no sense. So that's why I pause. Excuse me. I apologize. Uh, so hopefully there aren't too many more of these uh, grammatical errors in here. Moving along. Her work was read and admired by the likes of George Washington, but her talent posed a problem for national leaders at the time. Why? At the time she published her book, Wheatley was enslaved. Slave owners and abolitionists both read her work, the former to convince their slaves to convert, the latter as proof of slaves' intellectual abilities. That's according to the National Women's History Museum. The life of Phyllis Wheatley is somewhat buried in mystery. 
She was forcibly brought to Boston as a slave. She came on a ship named the Phyllis, according to Henry, Henry Louis Gates Jr., who is a historian. It is a fair guess that she would have been a native Wolof speaker from the Senegambian coast. She was described in the cargo list as a slender, frail female child. The young girl was estimated to be about seven. Susanna Wheatley bought her for very little money. She named her after the ship she was brought on to America. Susanna Wheatley and her husband, John Wheatley, had two children. They were twins named Nathaniel and Mary. Mary began teaching the young Phyllis how to read. The reasons were never shared, but she apparently had her mother's wholehearted support. Sixteen months after she'd arrived, she spoke and read English fluently, and she had started learning Latin. She published her first poem when she was 13 or 14, and she continued writing. Wheatley's poems reflected several influences on her life. Among them were the well-known poets she studied. These included Alexander Pope and Thomas Gray. That's according to the museum. Pride in her African heritage was also evident. Her writing style embraced the elegy. Elegy? I'm sorry, I don't know. I've never seen that word before. It was likely from her African roots. From there, it was the role of the girl to sing and perform funeral dirges. Religion was also a key influence. It led Protestants in America and England to enjoy her work. By the time she was about 18 years old, Wheatley and her owner, Susanna Wheatley, looked for subscribers. It was for a collection of 28 of her poems. Now, this is a fantastic story. Um, you know, I, I know I'm highlighting Phyllis herself as being the young poet and being the first black person in the United States to have anything published. Actually, it could be even the world uh, that had anything published, at least in the Western world. And uh, I don't want to leave out, though, the support that was given by Susanna Wheatley. And later, you'll hear about the support from the husband as well. So I don't want to discount that because, you know, especially during those times, that was a really significant thing to happen because in those times people would only go so far and we're not even talking about abolitionists here we're talking about the actual owners of this this human being that took the time to uh, not only allow her to develop this talent and develop this ability but to promote it as well it's just it's um it's, it's unheard of in that day and time the colonists were apparently unwilling to support literature by an African, so she and the Wheatleys turned in frustration to London for a publisher. That's according to the Poetry Foundation. She traveled to London with Nathaniel Wheatley. They met dignitaries, and they had the book printed. It was read and debated on both sides of the Atlantic. The book included a portrait of Wheatley in the front to underscore her race. It also had signatures from a number of colonial leaders verifying that she had written the books or written the poems in the book. With the publication of her book, Phyllis Wheatley almost immediately became the most famous African on the face of the earth. She was the Oprah Winfrey of her time, according to uh, Gates. The Wheatley's free Phyllis three months before Susanna Wheatley died. 
This was in 1774. After the book was published, many British editorials castigated the Wheatleys for keeping Wheatley in slavery while presenting her to London as the African genius. This according to the Poetry Foundation. So again, this is uh, just a great story. There's more to the article and uh, you can go and find that. Again, that was on uh, www.tweentribute.com. So folks, you are listening to the Always Believe in You show right here on 21.6 The Net. There are many great shows that we have available on uh, 21.6 The Net. Kicking off the week on Monday mornings, we have the foundation, the bedrock of the station, two ball guys and a microphone with your host, Tim, Coach Papa Stewart, Kent Deke Jones, and Rancher Ron, Ron Holstry from East Texas. That airs Monday from 6 to 9 a.m. On Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, we have Pete Talks Jobs with Peter Galt. That airs from 9 to 10 a.m., Mondays through Wednesdays. Monday evenings from 5 to 6, we have Let's Go Racing with Mike Babbitts. Following that, at 6 o'clock from 6 to 8 p.m., we have Slang and Hope Radio with Shay and Jessica Sassano, bringing you Recovery Nation, a show to support anyone who is feeling hopeless. Tuesdays from noon till 1 p.m. We have not done yet with Tom Sellers and Robbie Robinson, a support show for those dealing with terminal illness, particularly cancer. These are two cancer survivors, and they're just providing uh, hope and inspiration to those struggling or suffering from terminal illness, as well as those who are close family members and friends. Then from 7 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday evenings, we have the Deep Dive with Mr. Nick Espinoza. This is a show about all things cybersecurity, how to protect yourself online. Wednesday evenings, we have On the Bump with Young and Marshall, a sports show. Uh, It's almost like the uh, Seinfeld show. It's a show about nothing. Just some guys that are sitting around talking about sports. And if you happen to jump on Facebook on the 21.6 The Net Facebook page. When the show is airing live, you can send in comments or uh, replies or rebuttals to some of the stories that they talk about. It's a really fun show. Great, great group of guys. Uh, Ken Jones also is on there helping those guys to produce the show. Then on Thursday mornings, we have Freedom One with Tim Stewart. That airs from 6 to 7.30 a.m. And then from 10.30 to 11.30 a.m. on Thursdays, we have Beautifully Broken with Dawn Stewart, a support group for women. Then Thursday evenings from 4 to 5 p.m., we have the Always Believe in You show hosted by yours truly, Damon K. Ross. And then ending out the week so far is Slang and Hope Radio back again with a view from the other side with Shay and Jessica Sassano. And this is uh, coming from the perspective of those loved ones of addicts. So that airs from Thursday, or that airs Thursday evenings from 7 to 8.30 p.m. All times given are Central Standard Times. And I do know there are some new shows that are on the horizon. I'm not sure how soon some are coming, but 
if you would go to www.216thenet.com, you can find the lineup, and that's always updated. And you can listen to any shows on times that are not these. So what will happen is all of the shows will be put on shuffle, and you can hear them at any time. And as we get more and more shows, we'll have new shows filling up some of those time slots. And it's just a, a great, great opportunity for people to get their daily dose of encouragement with 21.6 The Nets lineup. And if you have any shows that you would like to possibly have on the air, again, go to the website, www.216thenet.com, and you can have the opportunity to talk to the guys and see if you can have a show on as well. And it would be a great thing. It's a great lineup, great group of people. Uh, We have great listeners. I appreciate all of you listening. And at this time, I will transition on to the interview portion of the show with my special guest, Mr. or I should say, Baba Kenya Ajanaku. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back with the Always Believe in You show with my guest, Baba Kenya Ajanaku. Ajanaku, correct. Good deal. Now, uh, it's interesting how I'm ending up in this interview. So right now I'm in St. Louis. I'm recording from St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, my mom said, hey, you know what? I got a guy for you to interview. He's, <laughs> he does a lot of teaching and storytelling. He works with youth. And, uh, you know, I can give him a call if you want to. I know it's kind of short notice. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm looking for people to interview because I, I want people who have a story to tell and to give a different perspective and, and show something that Everybody doesn't see all the time. So it was just a, a great opportunity that I had in this. So I hopped right on it. So, uh, Mr. Ajanaku, how are you doing today? I can't complain. I woke up this morning. And when I do that, I don't have any complaints. Amen. And I would like to thank your mother for recommending me because I'm always open to doing things like this. Absolutely. And you are a storyteller, a drum teacher. Uh, jeweler, jeweler, and African drummer, and African drummer, and so part of what you do, which again aligns with part of what my show is, is you teach. I teach. You you educate other people. Exactly. So one of the questions I want to ask you is, what would you say for you? One of the main ingredients that you have in order to connect with the audience, because a lot of my listeners are people that work with youth, and so. You know, one of the things that some people may try to figure out is how do I connect with my audience? So what would you say is one of your strengths? One of the strengths that I have is the jewelry making, the African drumming, the storytelling and the African dance. And this enables me to keep the children engaged. It's also something that a lot of them haven't been exposed to. Right. And it's not like trying to teach them how to spell or math. Right. <laughs> exactly. So a little bit of uh, give them a little bit of sugar before the medicine. That's goes right. Down. That's right. <laughs> I like that. And I think that's an important thing that a lot of people miss, you know, with teaching is, of course, we want them to have the information. We want them to understand what it is we're trying to communicate. But we have to put it in a way that's feasible, that that they can absorb. And they can relate to. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Definitely. So what what is, uh, you know, when you go into a school or a a library setting, 
kind of, can you give us a little bit of uh, how you go through the process of presenting? Well, when I go to the schools for storytelling, I have a 45-minute presentation, or either I can do a half-hour presentation. I always like to get to the venue a half-hour before I'm scheduled to perform, because it enables me to be able to check out the environment and set up everything. So, And I also tell other people who are into the visual and performing arts that my performance don't start when I hit the stage. It starts when I walk through the front door. I like that. I like that. <laughs> that is a, that is a very important key, what you said, uh, how you get there early and you survey. You know, I think a lot of people who serve themselves is, is by getting to know your audience and knowing what you're up against against knowing the the uh, energy of the room and all the, all of those things that uh, you just spoke about. Exactly. Uh, now, you've been to some pretty uh, interesting places here. Uh, I see that you've been to the Smithsonian Institute. Correct. In uh, D.C. Now, what was that like? What did you do? Well, there? we did a storytelling presentation okay. with a fellow who got me involved in storytelling, who is the first black storyteller, professional storyteller out of St. Louis. His name is Bobby Norfolk. Okay, I, know. I, yeah. I started playing percussions behind Bobby as he told his story, stories, and we was on the roster of young audiences. And Bobby blew up and went international, so he left the roster and they say, well, Kenya, can you come up with a program? And I said, sure. Nice. And I've been telling stories ever since. And I see you also were at the DuSable Museum in Chicago, yes. Illinois, which is close to my home. Right. Uh, you've been, uh, let's see if I can see here, the Powell Symphony Hall in St. Louis, uh, the Schobert Theater in Chicago. Uh, and I, the, the most impressive to me, though, is you were over in Ghana, West Africa. Ghana, West Africa at a festival, and we're also building a home in Ghana, West Africa. Oh, really? Yes. And so uh, what, what is the purpose? Like, what are you looking to do as far as the home? Is it something you're going to live in year-round, or? It's something that right now I'll just go back and forth. Okay. When I'm not there, I'll lease it out. Uh, but eventually, I'm 70 now. Eventually, I'm just going to go back to chill out <laughs> because what I do, I'll never retire. I don't have to worry about retiring. And I'm going to just say this right here. Uh, you know, for those that will not see this on YouTube, you don't look anywhere close to 70 years old. So <laughs> it tells me that you're taking care of yourself. And I think it right. has a lot to do with being in the visual and performing arts. I haven't had a regular job since I was 21. Okay. So I think that has a lot to do with it also. Hey, you can't beat that. I mean, so if, if what I'm hearing is correct, and I want you all really to listen and pay attention to this, when you find that thing that you're passionate about, that you really love, that you can do and make that your life, it helps keep you young. That's right. And it enables you to experience living opposed to just existing from paycheck to paycheck or day to day. It also enables you to travel all around the U.S. and outside of the U.S. And I do a proverb that says the world is a book. And those who do not travel only reads one page. That's awesome. I like that. I like that. You wrote that? or you No, that? I got that off of the campus of the university that I attended, okay. Johnson C. Smith University. 
Okay, so let, uh, let's take a little uh, journey on how you got to where you are now. So Excellent. you grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Missouri. Yes. And as I said, you went to school with my mom. Now, did you did you guys start in elementary together? No, I graduated from Dunboy Elementary. Okay. And Vashon High School. Okay. And so yes. Vashon is where you guys ended up meeting. Yes. Yes. Okay. And uh, before we got on air here, you were telling me that you were a swimmer. Yes, I started competing in swimming at eight years old, and I swam for four years in high school. Now, that is very interesting to me, uh, simply because, you know, today you don't see a lot of black athletes in the swimming pool. swimming, that's right. You know, so how did you get into swimming? What was your inspiration for that? Because I stayed on the corner of Compton and Lawton in the Mill Creek. And we had Vashon Community Center on Compton and Market. Okay. And they had a swimming pool. And I was able to walk to the swimming pool and the community center. Okay. That's amazing. And then uh, from there, you ended up going off to college and swimming in college as well. I received a four-year full scholarship to Johnson C. Smith University okay. in swimming. Yes. Okay, and what was that uh, experience like for you? It was a very different experience because coming from St. Louis, I had never lived anyplace else. And that's why it's important to travel, because you can see that there is something else other than your block where you come from. You understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. It also taught me a lot of things about respect, how Young people respect their elders Mm -hmm. and how it seemed that black people had more respect for themselves. I had to get used to strangers speaking. Really? In the South, that's a common thing. Also in the South, I realized that most people, when they graduated from high school, they was thinking about college. Okay. And then they was also thinking about buying a home. We wasn't thinking like that in my community okay. and the people that I was, you know, hanging out with. So that experience, like you said, opened up your mind, opened your eyes to a whole new world. Exactly. So uh, if I remember correctly, you didn't continue swimming the full four years. No, I didn't. So what was the next step in your After journey? the four years, I came back home to St. Louis and I got married to my high school sweetheart at nine. 19. Okay. Yes. And and then uh, at 21 is when you started the storytelling. No. Or I, not storytelling, the jewelry making, right? No, I started at 25. 25. Okay. Not 25. 21. And see, for the first five years that my wife and I was married, I was on my way to jail or hell. And she talked to me for five years. It was going in one ear and out the other, sometimes not even going in one ear. And then <laughs> finally she said, hit the road, Jack. <laughs> she, she divorced me. She let me come back after three months. I had a new way of walking and a new way of talking. And I started reading and studying my history and my culture. And that's how I got to where I am now because of that strong woman that I had in my life. Okay. And I tell young ladies that your job is to instigate, agitate, and motivate. (laughs) Ladies, please don't forget the motivate part. (laughs) Now, uh, as as a, a young man, based on the trajectory of your story, you hit a patch where it looked like 
you weren't going to make it to the heights that you've accomplished. Definitely. Like I say, I was on my way to jail or hell. But uh, what I like is that you realized through tragedy, you realized I've got to make a change. That's right. And that's the only way that, you know, you young people out there are going to really accomplish great things is you have to be able to look in the mirror, identify what your weaknesses are, identify those things that you need to change so you can propel yourselves just like Baba Kenya did. And and understand that the only thing consistent is change. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's the thing that gets left out a lot is we like to try to avoid change at all costs. When, Like you said, that is the most consistent thing in the universe. That's right. It's change. And so you have to be able to embrace change. And when you go through those rough patches and things seem to change and feels like for the worse, you got to take the learning and the lessons from those and it sounds like that's what you did. And then you were able to change. So then you come back in your home with your wife mm-hmm. and you you learn about your culture. You started to uh, educate yourself. Mm-hmm. And then that's when you got into the, is that when the, the jewelry, jewelry making? We started traveling. Okay. We left the country. We went to Panama, South America. Now, this when you say we, you mean you and your My wife. wife. Okay. And it was two other couples. Okay. We said we was leaving America. <laughs> okay. We was getting our 40 acres and a mule, and we was going to hit the road, Jack, right? So we left, and we went to Panama. Okay. It was three couples, and the reason why we chose Panama, because one of the sisters was from Panama. Okay. So... We sold everything we had. We did fundraisers. We leave in the country, right? Right before we was getting ready to leave, she got a job here in <laughs> St. Louis. So she said, I'm not going. Oh, no. <laughs> so we had to go head on and go. Right. But that's another good reason to travel because that was the first time I had left the U.S., and it ha- it was the first time that I seen poverty. Real poverty. Real poverty. You understand what I'm saying? I uh, visited big mounds of garbage, so many stories high. And people was at this mound of garbage shopping like they was at Snooks or a grocery store here. Wow. You following me? Yeah. My sons told me, they say, Dad, we don't want to live here. So we had to leave Panama because we recognized also that we was going to open up a business. Mm -hmm. But you can't open up a business unless you have a Panamanian partner. Oh, wow. So we didn't have the Panamanian partner because she decided to stay. But once we got there, we could understand why she decided to stay. Okay, right. <laughs> I like that. I like that. So you went out, got a, a a view of the world, something different. And again, like you said, you, you want to go out and have these experiences in life. And, you know, when you're young, that's the time to really go out and, you know, try to see the world, experience as many things as possible exactly. so you can find that, that thing that's going to sustain you. Because you got young, intelligent people But you don't have young, wise people, because in order to become wise, you must have life experiences. That's couldn't have said that better myself. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, once we got into the uh, to the jewelry making, how how did that 
how did you grow that? Okay, we returned back to St. Louis, but then we left and went back to Charlotte, North Carolina, okay. where I went to school. Right. And we opened up what we used to call a head shop right across the street from Johnson C. Smith University. So we opened up the head shop. And then we ran into these people called the Ajana Coos. Okay. And they were a group of people, and they were the first people that we saw making jewelry. Okay. So that's how we got into the jewelry making. We come out of the movies, and they were sitting out there with these boards with all this beautiful jewelry on it. And I had never seen jewelry made by someone that looks like me. Right. So we invited them over to our house for dinner and they showed us some of the jewelry techniques and they went door to door. That's how they earned their income. Okay. They would go door to door in the South uh, and work the projects. Okay. So we wanted to travel because we, you know, we was into Malcolm X and Malcolm said you should travel. Mm -hmm. So we gave up the store. And we start getting into the jewelry, and okay. we start going door to door. In with, the same in location? the south, okay. North Carolina, South Carolina. So we moved. We decided to move to Washington D.C. after we got more serious about the mm -hmm. jewelry making, because they told us most of the jewelers was on the East Coast or the West Coast. Right. So the East right. Coast was closer. So when we got to uh, the East Coast, they had ran a lot of the crass people off the streets vending. But we met this brother in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. So that's why we decided to settle in Washington, D.C. And that's where I started honing my jewelry skills. Now, here's a question I want to ask you. So you guys are uh, fresh off of selling everything. You move down to Panama. Panama. You come back. How were you able to get the materials? Because a lot of people will you know, like to make excuses, mm -hmm. you know, when they're trying to do something, I don't have the money or I don't have the resources or whatever. So you guys coming back as young people. Right. How were you able to get the we resources? We were dealing with some group economics. Okay. And that's how we were able to get the resources. Plus, when we moved back to to the U.S., we still had money that we was going to set our business up in South America, Panama. Okay. So we didn't, like, blow all of our money. Right. And that's, we made that decision because we couldn't speak the language, mm -hmm. wasn't any social programs in Panama. So we say rather than stay and use up all our money, we re decided to relocate back to Charlotte, North Carolina. Right. Okay. So I like what you said there. So you guys had a game plan. Right. So you didn't just jump out there, oh, we're going to do this. Right. And even when you did jump out, to go and get started, you made sure that you kept your eyes on the on the goal. That's right. And you stay disciplined. I think that's a lot of a lot of what uh, a lot of what the young people are missing is that discipline because it took a lot of discipline to have that money and not just exactly. go wild with exactly. it. But you, you knew what you had in mind. Exactly. And you were able to say, okay, and that's I had this a is for family. that reason. I had a wife and two right. children. Okay, and I'm sure that mm -hmm. probably helped a lot with the decision. And in my drum class, I tell young people, in order to be a good drummer, a productive student, mm -hmm. a productive adult, one must be able to listen, you must be able to follow instructions, and you must have discipline. 
to execute the instructions that you are given. Also, I tell young people, once you make that change and you give up that herd mentality, Mm -hmm. they're going to start saying that you are crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't worry about that. You stay focused on your goal. Right. Because like I say before, once you're not doing what everybody else is doing, they're going to say something is wrong with him. Yeah. We all going this way. He going back the other way. And that that is what throws a lot of people off. And I like that herd mentality. I'm going to have to start using that. But <laughs> a lot of the, the students at the school we work with, that's what they struggle with. We have some that are, you know, trying to get out of that pack, trying peer to do pressure. the right thing. But they fall to that peer pressure because they don't like being out on that island by yourself but if you want to if you want to succeed they're not going to do it for you that's right so you have to be willing to stand on that island by yourself and step out on faith exactly Mm -hmm. exactly so Mm -hmm. so you guys uh you you had the materials you moved up to dc they kicked all of the the vendors Vendors off off the the streets Mm -hmm. what was what next after we moved to dc they kicked all the vendors off of the street then we were burglarized while we was in the house sleeping. No. So that was so traumatic. I say, we can't live here anymore. And that's when we moved back to St. Louis. Okay. 1980. Now, were you all still together? Or was this just you, your wife, and your kids? Yes, just me and my wife and my kids then. Yes. Okay. Okay. So we moved back to St. Louis. And I was driving down... Jefferson Avenue at Olive and this pawn shop called Sam Light's Pawn Shop. I was still making the jewelry. That was the only way I had to make a living at the time. Mm -hmm. I looked in the window and I seen this conga drum. Okay. I pulled over and bought the conga drum. I told my mother I had bought a conga drum. She said, boy, what are you going to do with a drum? (laughs) She said, you're 31 years old. You're married with two kids. You better get up to Bi State. They hiring. (laughs) (laughs) At the time, I didn't know what I was going to do with this drum, but now I know. The creator had a plan for me. I just didn't realize it or recognize it at the time. Okay. So then I got the drum. I started playing with music, and someone told me about Catherine Dunham in East St. Louis, Illinois, had brought a master drummer from Senegal, West Africa. His wow. name is Morcham. Okay. Brought Morcham to East St. Louis, Illinois. So I started going over and taking classes. Right. I started developing, and Miss Catherine Dunham hired me as a drummer for the Catherine wow. Dunham Dance Company and also to play for dance classes. So this helped me become diversified. Mm -hmm. You know, my grandmother used to say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. So now I was making money in the performing arts along with making money in the visual art with the jewelry. And that enabled me to travel all around the country. We opened up uh, Walt Disney Epcot in Orlando, Florida. That was one of the best experiences I have had because we represented Africa. They had 23 countries represented it. And our group 
represented Africa. And we were there for four weeks, and then we went back for eight weeks. Walt Disney, Epcot, in Orlando, Florida. And I tell young people, that's another thing about these visual and performing arts. Not only can you make a living, but it enables you to travel Mm -hmm. and see things that you would normally be exposed to. Right. That's amazing. They call them lifelong skills. You see, today, the job situation is kind of dead. I tell people the cotton has been picked. Automation is here. So the need for unskilled laborers nowadays is zero. Right. Nowadays, you need some type of skill or some type of service that you can provide. And we would just like more of our young people to look at the visual and performing arts. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Always Believe in You show on 21.6 The Net, your daily dose of encouragement. Uh, We have a lot of great shows. If you go to www.21.6thenet.com, you can find the lineup for all the amazing shows that we have uh, on air. So, uh, Baba Ajanaku, If people wanted to find out more about you and what you do, where would they go? They would go to Kenya and Wayne at sbcglobal.net. We're working on a website now. Okay. So we don't have a website yet. We're working on it now. Okay. If they wanted to contact me by phone, it's 314-452-2876. Our organization is called the Harambe Institute. Harambe is a Swahili term that simply means we all pull together, and that's what my board members and I are doing. We're trying to slow down this pipeline from the elementary to the penitentiary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of information that I've uh, seen about that, about how they, uh, if I'm not mistaken, how they look at the test scores from fourth grade yes and then that's how they kind of determine out in the future what's going to happen with the prison systems which is how many prisons they need to yeah build. it's just it's just insane but uh, it's real it, exactly exactly <laughs> that is uh the amazing thing now uh you talked a lot about travel so if there are people outside of the st louis area that would like for you to come out is we go all go over i have a 45 minute presentation I can do a half-hour presentation. In the presentation, we incorporate African folk tales, African call and response song, and then we do proverbs and things like that. Okay, okay. And I also bring along African instruments where I bring people up out of the audience, teaching them the basics of African drumming. And that kind of goes to what you were saying in the beginning is give them something to engage, audience participation, you yes. got to get that engagement. Right. I, I love it. I right. love it. So uh, 31, you're, uh, you you get the drum, you start playing the drum. So now you've got the drumming and you have the jewelry making. Correct. So when did the storytelling come The storytelling came in, the first black storyteller, professional storyteller out of St. Louis, Bobby Norfolk. He asked me to play percussions behind him as he told his stories. So I started playing percussions behind Bobby Norfolk, and I started seeing how powerful storytelling was, right? Mm -hmm. So Bobby left a roster of young audiences, and he went international. 
And so they say, well, Kenya, can you come up with a program? I said, sure. And I've been into the storytelling business since I was 41. Nice, nice. So um, when you go out for your presentations, you incorporate all three? Yes. The jury, the storytelling, and the Yes, I do workshops also. Okay, now do you work with a, a... group of people or yeah now with the drums we work with 10 people at a time with the jewelry making we work with 10 people at the time at a time with the african dance we can do up to 25 and with the storytelling workshop we can do up to 50 okay Mm -hmm. that's one now i'm going to say this and this is uh not a slide let me continue you are not a famous person no i'm not and the reason I say that is because I just want to, you know, for all the young people that are going to get a chance to listen to this or watch this on YouTube to understand that you don't have to go into something that is going to make you famous. So you don't have to try to become a professional athlete. You don't have to try to become a world famous professional entertainer. There are arts, there's sciences, there's a plethora of things you can do that you're passionate about, that you love, that will sustain your life and bring you joy. And you don't Be- have to have all of the, the big Because things. I realize that money isn't the essence of life. And when you are doing something that you are passionate about, something that you love, it makes it a profession and not a job. Exactly. A job or a career. Right. So what do we have uh, coming up next uh, well, for you? Next, I'll be setting up tomorrow at the Grandale Square with the African Drum and Dance Company, Afriki Lolo. I'll be setting up there with my jewelry making class. Okay. I mean, with, with my jewelry and imports. And then on the 15th, I'll be in Chicago. All right. Yes. Good deal. So all yes. of my... Uh, Chicago folks, uh, give them the information again so they can call you if they wanted to come and check that out. If they wanted to uh, call me, it's 314-452-2876. Okay, and then the the, uh, email email address is Kenya, that's K-E-N-Y-A, Wayne, W-E-Y-N-I, at SBC global.net fantastic now i'm gonna uh, ask you a couple of final questions okay. here before we wrap up here the first one is if you could go back in time and go talk to that 19 to 20 year old mm-hmm. kenya mm-hmm. what would you say what advice would you give yourself well if i could go back in time i wouldn't change anything fantastic. you're following me Because you have to have life experience to get from point A to point B. So I am really glad that I had the experiences that I had because it helped me get to where I am today. All right. So then the second or the last question, if you could speak to the young people out there now, what advice would you give them on accomplishing their goals and dreams? I would say you want to understand that we have moved into a service-oriented society, and nowadays that you need a skill or some type of service that you could provide, and I would like for you to understand that you can get involved with the visual and performing arts, and there are a lot of things in the arts 
that you can get involved with. Absolutely. But the main thing is understand entrepreneurship is what we need to be thinking about doing some business because we have been reduced to nothing but consumers. Yes, absolutely. Well, Baba Kenya, Ajanaku, I appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on to the Always Believe in You show. And, uh, you know, look, I appreciate you having look me. forward to uh, much success and I uh, look forward to checking out those DVDs that you uh, got for yes, me. Yes, please. So, uh, again, thank you. Much gratitude right. to you and to all the folks listening out there. Again, uh, go to uh, www.216thenet.com to check out the lineup for the other shows. I appreciate you listening to my show. If you want to uh, listen to past shows, you can go to www.demondkross.podbean.com. And that'll take you to, uh, like I said, all of the shows unedited. So you'll get the full length because uh, some of the shows I have to cut down for the radio. And uh, I've, I haven't got it set up yet, but I will have my YouTube videos up on the ABIY show on YouTube. So that's my channel. And uh, continue to support the station. Continue to support my show. appreciate you guys. And as always, keep striving, stay humble, and always believe in you. Till next time.